Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. Today, I have the distinct honor of interviewing Dr. Chris Lazina, I have to tell you, he's a psychologist, he's a retired professor, he's a best-selling author, and he's also a researcher. There'll be some research links at the bottom of this podcast so you can learn more about what he talks about in the podcast. We look at how pets really are our unwavering friends and how social norms sometimes make it difficult for men to actually articulate how important their pets are to them. They feel really vulnerable. He also talks about the emotional intelligence that is cultivated by owning a pet and caring for a pet. And we wrap up by talking about how the pandemic and pandemic puppies and people learning how to care for them or maybe turning them in um, is not necessarily the end-all and be-all, but rather a case-to-case symptom of how we return to the new normal. So let's listen to what Chris has to say. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton, and today on Why Do Pets Matter, we're interviewing Dr. Chris Balzina. He is a licensed psychologist, a retired professor, and he helps people who are in distress, whether or not they lost a dog or if the dog is part of their recovery. I love talking with Chris last week because we just had so much in common. So I invited him on Why Do Pets Matter to tell us more about what he does. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Deborah. I appreciate being here visiting with you. Well, I'm so glad you're visiting with us as well, because after our last call, I know you're going to bring so much information to the listeners, because this is what you do. You help people who are suffering from depression or any kind of um, difficult uh, disorder or even just difficult time. And some of that might actually be around uh, losing an animal. So we all know why do pets matter? They matter incredibly. And when we lose them, it's a huge emotional um, shock to most people who own pets and being able to um, talk to someone about that who's empathetic and compassionate is really key. So I want to thank you for what you do. And it's really my pleasure. It's part of part of the meaning and purpose of um, uh, my work as a psychologist and um, I don't know. I, I feel really honored to have animals in my life. So, 
Well, thank you so much. And as we always do on Why Do Pets Matter, we ask our guests the first question and then we go from there. Chris, why do pets matter to you? Uh, the, the thing that comes to my mind is uh, they are one unwavering friend. Uh, they are an emotional constant. Uh, and they have been um, most all my life, growing up with dogs and uh, the importance of those dogs within my big Southern dysfunctional family and uh, having uh, my my dog growing up sit on the porch in the backyard and we would talk about things going on in the house. And um, I didn't know this going through graduate school, but now looking back, I realized that the way that my dog, whose name was Scooby back then, taught me what it meant to be a good listener. And um, those lessons have stayed with me. And, uh, you know, part of the work that I try to do research-wise is trying to give words to understanding why, in the spirit of your question, why, why pets matter and how they can have a type of therapeutic presence in our lives and what happens when we have those connections in our lives. Uh, it ends up being a complicated thing that I've thought about a lot and done a lot of research in and certainly seen in my practice as a psychologist. But um, boy, to have one unwavering friend in your life, that's we, we all need at least one of those. And sometimes those friends are on four legs instead of two. You know, it's interesting you started out with Scooby and you, the beginning, because I think most people who are probably listening to this podcast had a Scooby in their life when they were children. And if not, they longed for a Scooby in their life as children. But it gets so difficult to articulate that need and that feeling to animals when we're adults. And I know you work with men um, a great deal of the time about their relationships with animals and um, how they really support them. It's, it's interesting that that unwavering friend, when you become an adult, is sometimes very difficult to um, share the depth of your love and affection for these animals. It's really true. And um, all of that, you know, in my mind, all of that is based on a, a particular premise prevalent and more contemporary psychoanalytic approaches to psychology. And that has to do with the idea that we really are wired to be social creatures. We are wired to make and sustain connections, not just in the formative years, but throughout our lives. And we need that presence of at least one other to not just keep us afloat, but help us flourish. Um, given that there's such a prevalence in terms of the kind of strains that are put on people, and sometimes people refer to these as adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, or a more technical jargon, sometimes they're referred to as developmental traumas. They're, they're things that get in the way of helping us fully form and develop our emotional well-being and our sense of who we are and our sense of self. And we, we need that one unwavering connection, not just growing up, but throughout our whole lives. And that's really where there's this intersection between why our pets matter and 
the work I do uh, predominantly with male clients, though I also work with women. But um, uh, we could talk about this, but some of the socialization, uh, especially in Western culture, is you know, men are the exception to that rule. Uh, we're, we're not really social creatures. We don't need connections. In fact, that's a mark of our established manhood that we're lone souls traveling through the world. But that's really not the case. Uh, even those folks who really try to disavow that part of themselves, that relational part, it's a part that shows up when they're in contact and really bonded with their animal companions. And that, that phrase itself, animal companion, uh, in the literature, it really is about a pet that becomes a friend or family member. You know, it's funny because we, we do refer to them as man's best friend, right? So right there, that gives you a connotation of what they're supposed to be. However, as you were talking, what was running through my mind, and I'm sure this has run through your mind a million times, or all the movies we saw when we were younger, My Friend Flicker, Oliver, um, uh, Old Yeller, all of them having to do with animals that um, really made an impact uh, on a little boy or a little girl's life. And then they had to, the boys had to be tough, you know, and had to do things. I, I loved when you said, you know, it isn't necessarily something that is easy, that comes easily um, to uh, the, the male speed of the species as opposed to the female of the species who have, I think, taken on these animals as children far earlier than anyone else because they are these unwavering friends and, um, and confidants. So tell me a little bit about what you think when you think of things like Old Yeller, that this is what a little boy is going to go to the movie theater and see. And so you're allowed to love a dog really, really tough. But then, you know, you have to be, you know, all grown up or in the connotation, be a man and do what's right. And that's got to be crushing when you really have such a beautiful and wonderful relationship with an animal. I think it is really tough. And it's um, I think for some males, whether that's the boys growing up or adult men, um, this connection with animal companions flies below the radar of kind of social expectation. Like, all right, well, I'm, I'm not really a social creature. And except for my dog, my dog doesn't count because he's a dog. Uh, but you discount you really, that relationship, right? That, that's right. That's right. But um, it, it's funny. I mean, a study a colleague and I did a couple of years ago looked at a, an issue related to what we're talking about because, um, what, well, the study found that men who are um, who adhere to more traditional male gender roles, like being stoic and uh, containing their emotions and feeling like they're really independent and, and again, not in need of other people in their life. And those men were men who felt connected to their animal companions, especially their dogs, but there was a real tendency to underreport it and to kind of keep it hidden from other people in their lives. Uh, and I can tell you a story when I, when I was teaching not too long ago and a graduate student, and I were talking about this and she said, oh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, my dad is probably the most macho guy I know. And he has this little dog and never thought he really was that close to it until one day I looked in the window of the house and he was there with his dog and doing baby talk and cuddling it. 
And then, uh, then he felt like somebody was watching. So he all of a sudden stopped. And it, that that's really telling in terms of what that kind of study represents, that there's this tension between, well, this is a connection that's really important to me, but I'm not really sure other people are going to understand it. So uh, it, it actually could be make me be seen to other people as less manly because of that. So what I'll do is just downplay it. I'll, I'll say it's not that important or um, I'll even kind of like try to hide it from folks. Uh, so I think that's really indicative of the kind of issues that we're talking about, and not just with men, but uh, given that I work with a lot of males, uh, it, it's something that's really prevalent in terms of, okay, you need this one, uh, one unwavering friend, but you're really not supposed to acknowledge that it's there. Yeah, it seems to. I loved when you put that, you know, it's in this this animal is important to me. Um, I'm not so sure that others are going to understand how important this animal is to me or even, you know, want to know how important this animal is to me. So I'm just going to hide it um, because I might be seen as as less masculine because this animal, you know, means so much. However, on the flip side, I know you've probably seen that some of the greatest um, advocates for uh, disenfranchised animals are motorcyclists, bikers, you know, with tattoos and leather. Uh, and the littler the dog, the better. And so there's that ability, I guess, when you can collaborate with others like-minded who love animals, then maybe you can find the strength to say, okay, this tension I can release here. I have fellow colleagues who also find animals, especially I love when you said it was a small dog, you know, here are these big macho guys who lift weights and things and have muscles upon muscles. And yet they have teacup poodles or little chihuahuas, which, you know, really are indicative of the fact that it is this unwavering friend that they've um, become attached to. Well, so we can take a a little bit even further than that in terms of some of the research that looks at men and their dogs. And uh, a couple of these are studies that came out in a book that I did with some colleagues a couple of years back. And this, this theme is found all across the lifespan uh, for adolescent boys who were uh, in various juvenile detention facilities and programs um, their participation in training dogs actually led to an increase in emotional intelligence. Uh, so uh, that's important there. And then one of the things I see over and over again, and this is a middle-aged man dynamic, is the research really supports the idea that as men get older, their social networks shrink and shrink to the size of a postage stamp. So that might include a significant other and their dog. And a study that came out by a colleague of mine about 10 years ago looked at, for middle-aged men, who are they most likely to turn to in moments of distress? Like, who's the person who kind of cheers their mob, helps them make it through uh, the dark night of the soul? And for 41% of men, that person was their dog. Yeah. Uh, and... No the dog, the dog was the person they turned to more so than their parents, their best friend, their siblings. The only person that rivaled the dog was their significant other. 
So when we're talking about these kind of findings, they put it into a perspective of men really are social creatures. They might have ambivalent feelings about letting other people know that, but with their dogs, there is something going on there where that bond feels secure and safe enough where this relational part of them can really come out and connect. That's really a significant part of the inner world of a a male psyche, uh, that there's this conflict, but when there are moments, and we really are trained to do this in our socialization, to be able to pick up when there are moments when it's really safe to finally open up. But, But most of the time, had this kind of suspicious on guard perspective that people are not going to get us and they're going to think less of us for showing these more vulnerable parts with our dogs. It's different. You know, it's funny because vulnerability is the hardest thing to um, overcome when you feel vulnerable to have a conversation that opens you up. And yet with your pet, that's really the, most prevalent conversation you probably have. It's, it's really amazing. And, and again, like uh, there is a kind of suspiciousness built into traditional masculinity, like what will people think of me? Uh, so when you find a connection that allows you to drop your guard, not only is that really important, but it's also very telling in terms of the kind of purity of that connection. Like I can really count on fill in the blank, and in this case, my dog, uh, to be a steady support, somebody that I really trust. You know, it's it. I love what, what you're talking about because it's so important with why pets matter um, in that at the beginning of our lives, um, it's, it's so easy to become connected to your pet, be it a bird, a horse, a lizard, a snake, a dog, uh, and then it seems as we as we age, some people, and you probably have this in your practice, some people continue to take that um, unfettered relationship, uh, friend, just really important life force with them. And others tend to try to go it alone. Uh, and in your practice, how does that work for them? Especially if, say, they're going on to a professional career. I know that a lot of veterinarians in, in my neck of the woods, some of the work I do, um, they have a number of dogs um, or they don't have a number of dogs and the pressure really is tough on them. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I mean, I, again, I, I really think this is a lot about uh, a kind of notion that how not just that animal companions are really important, but the kind of psychological roles that they play for us. Uh, and again, I can reference another study that a colleague and I did a few years ago, a different study that asked middle-aged men to tell us about the different roles that they play, the dogs play in their life. And the roles that really stood out would be sometimes they're a source of hope, like, um, a type of like, Oh, if I have this connection, maybe there's a possibility that, I can find a kind of connection like this with human beings too. Uh, some of it can be a kind of a role model too. I mean, some, do, some people will look to their dogs, both men and women, look to their dogs as, wow, this dog is in some, in some ways showing me how to be better at being in relationships. Uh, they become the kind of role model. 
some some of the roles include just kind of the day-to-day accompaniment that we all need, like your running buddy or the person you take on a hike or, or the day or the, the days that you watch a movie with your dog on the couch, somebody who occupies uh, a sense of accompaniment and that kind of role. And, and, you know, we can think about this in terms of the last couple hundred years that dogs have gone from uh, a kind of role of, you know, in America being on the frontier and you needed a dog or uh, yeah, to help all the vermin away. Right. That's right. And for protection and, and those kinds of things. And um, what we think about maybe now more and more is the psychological roles that dogs play in our lives. Uh, it still can be, that doesn't mean that that's a brand new thing, but maybe that has become the more predominant focus in terms of how do animal companions fill up our lives? And we can think about it in psychological terms. Uh, they, they do inspire and give hope and provide a sense of meaning and purpose for so many. It, it is an important shift. And it's one of the reasons why, again, the research suggests that, especially in North America, upwards of 90% of people who have pets think about them as animal companions, friends or family members. Right. And, and let me ask you, so that, that leads me to the next question, which of course I speak about a number of times on the podcast, because why do pets matter? We all know because we have pets, but there's the largest disenfranchised group in the universe are the ones that don't have pets in their lives. And I'm sure you don't have a lot of them walking through your practice, but in your studies, I'm sure you've looked at those who didn't have pets in their lives and how they handled different situations, maybe not. But it seems that those of us who love having pets in our lives, um, and and this is a perspective of mine, and I don't know how how you feel about it. uh, I find that people who love animals, stick with people who love animals, and people who love animals are very suspicious of people who don't have an animal and don't want one. Well, I I definitely think there's something there. It's kind of a litmus test in some way. Like, if my dog likes you, then maybe I like you. I see you as well. So, uh, I mean, I think they are good judges of people who feel safe. And, And the other side of that, not so much. Yeah. It, it makes it really interesting uh, because there's the um, emotional support animal, which we spoke about before he came on the air, and how to have that animal in a situation where someone might have bought a, a, an apartment or whatever in an OPET building. And how do you have that conversation? And what do you, as the, as the person receiving the accommodation for the emotional support animal, um, help the other parties there understand that you understand the accommodation, you appreciate the accommodation, and how can I help you not get angry at me for the accommodation? Uh, yeah, and uh, I know some folks who are not dialed into the issue you're talking about would see these kinds of things as somewhat frivolous or uh, this is a hoax in some way, but, you know, what we're really talking You're playing the game. You're, 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 That's you're, right. That's right. And, and, you know, I think some folks push the limits there, but it doesn't doesn't in any way take away from the notion that, again, animal companions play a significant psychological role for so many folks. And some of that has to do with keeping hope alive in your life, especially if you are facing kind of chronic 
issues, whether you're somebody who was a veteran and seen a lot of the difficult war-torn areas of the world, or you grew up with a situation that psychologists refer to as ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And that could be financially, it could be at the cultural level, um, it can be that there just wasn't the kind of emotional sustenance in your family present that you really needed. Well, for, for folks who are in these various contextual challenges, an animal companion becomes a type of necessary lifeline uh, that not all folks understand, but that's a real dynamic. You know, now that, that we're coming out of COVID um, and there's the discussions about how everyone went out and ran and got a dog uh, because they were home. And now there's the fear that everyone's going to turn the dog in once they return because, you know, we're a Washington society or, you know, it's the, the, the flavor of the moment. And for me, I, I'm thinking that people are going to understand the benefits to their entire family from the father and mother down to the kids of having that time to bring the animal into um, the family, what that gives. I mean, this whole conversation has talked about how that has really fed the souls of the family because now not they're not guard dogs. They're, they're really companions and family members. So when you bring it in, if you dispose of it, the impact on the family uh, will be huge. And so the questions I wanted to ask was, what do you think about um, the fact that people are, are claiming that um, they're going, they're going to drop off the dogs and they're not going to keep them. Um, and secondly, the second part of that question, what might uh, people do to help sustain animals in the home because of the benefits they accrue to every member of the family? Sure. Uh, really important questions. Um, I mean, one part of this, I mean, I think the stereotype would be that, you know, um, there are these soulless people who adopt dogs for their own benefit. And now that they can uh, get beyond pandemic reaches, uh, time to get rid of that dog. There are no doubt some folks out there like that. But I think when we're talking about issues of relinquishment, it's so difficult and it ends up being very complex. Uh, we've gone through almost a year and a half of a pandemic thereabout, and uh, folks are financially tapped. Uh, they, doesn't mean that they're in a better place because the pandemic has uh, gotten better. Financially, there's a backlog of different kinds of things that are taxing. And some of that has to do with, well, you can't afford to be in the place that said that they would allow your dog to be. So uh, you are put in a place, really difficult place in terms of what do I do with a dog? My landlord won't let me keep them or I have to move to a different place to, to downsize and even more. So yeah. that, those are very real issues. Uh, and again, there's a part of some folks who would be like, well, you know, they, they're just not caring. They're going to you know, give their dog away after all their dog has done for them. There are some folks out there like that, but I, I'm going to argue that the vast majority of folks who have to relinquish a pet, it, it's done with a, a broken heart, not a uh, a stone cold heart. I think that's a different kind of deal. 
I'm so glad you said that because I've been talking to a number of people who are, you know, really lamenting. Um, and there was a study that uh, made some people cringe that said they aren't dropping the dogs off. And I actually think the same way you do. I think if someone has a tremendous shift in their life, um, the dog is the last thing they want to get rid of or to place. Um, however, if it comes to a roof over their heads or food for their children, then that might be something that you need to consider because that's what you need to consider. And I might be blasphemous uh, by saying that. However, you know, we're not walking in their shoes. And I know as a psychologist, that's probably one of your mantras. You want to hear people tell you what they feel like in their shoes and it's okay. And can we be compassionate, empathetic and help them? Maybe give them food, maybe find them another place, a shelter that allows pets, you know, let's not judge, let's, you know, problem solve. Right. And uh, just to be really clear, I, I feel incredibly protective of the animal companions in our lives. So I'm, I'm not in any way offering a free pass to people who, who right. are not Me responsible. Either. Um, the other side of that is this is an opportunity for a sense of community to emerge where people who are placed in a situation where relinquishment is a real possibility that there not be a sense of shame about reaching out about like, what can the community do to, if I can't keep this dog or cat, uh, what can the community do to help me find a home that can be uh, more of a forever home for them? Um, or even so, a temporary home until I get my feet on the ground. You know, maybe that's right. It, that's right. right. It, it. I love the way you put that because that's exactly how I feel, and and maybe have not said it so eloquently. But then that's why you're the best-selling author. Um, the community needs to engage to problem solve as opposed to blame and shame. Um, because as you said, most people um, are not soulless. However, they have to make tough decisions. And if we can help them say, well, that's one way to do it. You know, that's the mediator coming out and me saying, well, that's one way to do it. Tell me what the best outcome would be. And maybe we can facilitate a way to do that instead, which would be, you know, let's keep the dog for the kids. Let's keep the dog for the family. Let's see if we can figure that out. Mm -hmm. it, it really does. I mean, there is a potential sense of community that can, maybe that is the, the, the kind of silver lining in the clouds of the pandemic is for animal companions. Can there be a sense of community that emerges that allows these conversations to happen and for people who really need support to be able to find it? You know, Chris, I, I love this conversation. I'm so thrilled we are here um, together because understanding that this unwavering love and support from an animal that's it, so important in our lives sometimes if we're lucky enough, like my kids were, I start when we're young children because our parents have a dog when we're born um, or get a dog when we're old enough. And these are our confidence. These are our diaries, right? If our animals could talk, God forbid, right, Chris? I know, I don't know about you, but if my dogs could talk, it would be really not good for me when I was young. Um, I told them about all my terrible escapades. Uh, but, you know, going forward, they absolutely have kept us going. And, and maybe the pandemic, one of the silver linings is people who didn't have time to find that um, unfettered relationship with an animal now have it. And maybe in your practice, you'll see a shift for the better. 
Well, I sure hope so. I mean, I think there is a way that this kind of connection teaches people. And even if you weren't a, an animal person before, um, there is a, for some folks, a learning curve where it's just like, oh, I get it now. I get it why people become dog people or cat people. And um, it, I mean, I can quote Freud here because he was a really big dog lover all his life. Um, and he talked about the difference between dogs and people. And uh, his experience was that, you know, dogs offer a type of pure love that's in really made up of an unambivalent way of approaching and relating to us. Unlike people, uh, Freud suggests, uh, who can really at their best moments, see temporarily beyond ambivalence, even with the people they really do love. And we don't see that with dogs. And again, this is directly from Freud. Dogs love their friends, bite their enemies. There's a straightness in that kind of a communication that consciously or not, we start to trust if we're around dogs long enough. Like, oh, uh, they are going to offer us feedback that, you know, we're being a little too uh, intense right now or a little too gruff. And and they'll tell us. They'll tell us by backing away or they'll tell us by showing that they're upset if you know how to look for the signs. But uh, again, that's a part of a really important relationship that you have someone who would be that direct and honest with you and in an unfiltered way. And, and so pure. I love you said that because there are a lot of people um, who say if your dog growls or your dog isn't always allowing people to do whatever they want to it, especially children, um, then it's not a steady dog. And um, as I said before, my kids are really lucky. <clears throat> I had dogs before I had kids. And when the dogs would be in a situation that I felt was risky, uh, I would tell my sons, you know, if Beaver was one of our dog's names, if he bites you, it's because you've crossed that line. He would never bite anyone. However, you need to treat him with the respect that you want to be treated with. And I think you said um, a few minutes ago about emotional intelligence. And I think that's the thing that if you allow your dog, I mean, I don't want vicious dogs chewing on people. Please don't get me wrong. However, dogs need to, um, like they do puppies. If you ever see a mother dog with her puppies, she lets them know. And she lets them know in no uncertain terms, much better than I did, I might add, um, that this is okay behavior and this isn't okay behavior. And they learned it early. Early. Um, and they will give you that that direction. And I loved when you said, you know, they give you direct feedback. Um, you know where they stand. You know how they feel. Um, no filters. So that's the piece that I, I really feel is important to understand about pet ownership as well. Yes, we don't want our dogs um, chewing on anyone. However, if they do, there should be a conversation, especially if it's with your, your kids. What, did you, what happened here that created this dynamic? Yes. And uh, sometimes I think we're tempted to think that dogs are all cut from the same cloth and, and they're really not. They have their own context and background. And sometimes when you adopt a dog, they have their history of neglect and abuse. And um, this is where this becomes, uh, I think, in more philosophical terms, uh, Martin Buber notion of an I-thou relationship. It's not all about us. It's about the importance of the connection that we receive from a dog, but it's also important in terms of us really thinking about the dog and their well-being too. Uh, and in that way, it is a type of 
uh, a sacred relationship. It's like we really are honoring the connection and it's really not a one-way direction and connection. It, it's really two-way. Yeah. But for us to be able to do that, that means we have to learn about kind of what are the limits of our dog. And if they've had a difficult time, uh, there's something potentially healing for folks to be able to offer good things to our dogs, maybe things that we never received ourselves growing up. Uh, so again, it, it becomes a very complex stance in terms of the give and take in any important relationship. And that's true too. And when we're talking about with our animal companions. You know, the two things that come up for me are Roger Karras's statement, which is uh, dogs aren't my whole life, but they make my life whole. Um, I truly believe that is perfect, short and sweet. Um, and the other one is I wish I was the person my dog thinks I am. I can always strive to be the person my dog thinks I am. And I think both of them relate what we're talking about here on Why Do Pets Matter is our pets see us in our best light regardless if we deserve that, but they see us in our best light. And maybe if we can move forward in our lives, seeing both our pets and other people in their best light, we might have a little bit more compassion and empathy for each other. What do you think, Chris? Well, I really like that approach. And and I often think about uh, sometimes when I get a chance to visit with people on podcasts and radio programs, my dogs are right underneath me and they're in the next room to pay. But at some point, there's usually some kind of stirring or kind of joyful barking. And I always think about that as the dog is kind of rooting for us. And I, I usually think about that in larger scale terms, too, that in the best moments, our dogs continue to root for our better selves, that they continue to grow and we learn how to be with each other in better ways. They know we're in there. They're trying to dig us out like a bone out of the ground. They're trying to dig us out. They know we're in there uh, and they, they're relentless in digging out the best of us. So, Chris, you know, this is such a fabulous conversation. I hope everyone enjoyed it as much as I have. I'm going to ask Chris if he'll come back. And also, I'm going to ask Chris to send me some of the research papers he referred to. So anyone who wants to do a little bit more reading about the studies that Chris was involved with will be able to get that link. Chris, thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It's been my pleasure, Deborah. I hope we have a chance to visit again in the future. Oh, absolutely. So this is Deborah Hamilton, Hamilton Law and Mediation, and the Why Do Pets Matter podcast. And don't forget to join us Wednesday nights for the MAP community, which plans the care of your pet in the event you can no longer take care of it. Remember, it's not just about dying. It's about the nine Ds, which is divorce, delay, disease, disaster, disability, um, deployment. And uh, now we've added uh, domestic violence. If you make a plan for your pet, those pets will be cared for long-term, short-term. So until next time, please enjoy this episode of Why Do Pets Matter? Like it on any of your platforms for podcasts and please share it with your friends. Take care. The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcast. Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.